0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts,
1: Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 198 Cloud Trail and Just Activity Events, Cloud Pod and Just Pizza. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter, full house tonight. Good evening. Hi there. Hola. Hola. Another fantastic week has come and gone, and uh, we have some stories to get through today. Uh, So first up, uh, HashiCorp announced at the HashiCorp 2022 Terraform support for native OPA was coming, and now I can officially say it's generally available. Uh, The native OPA support for Terraform Cloud is now available to you, including several features, ability to individually manage or VCS connect your policies. You now support OPA policy sets, Enforcement levels, policy overrides, a full RBAC model, and auditing, all available to you natively in the Terraform cloud if you're using the Open Policy Agent, or OPA for short. Uh, great to see additional security coming into the cloud. Uh, you know, there's definitely a few competing standards, but OPA is definitely starting to take the win, in my opinion. Yeah, you, you very rarely hear any any other mention, you know, uh, and I think
2: that Terraform supporting OPA over, you know, their Sentinel. Um, offering, I think, is very, uh, very. Uh, I don't know. Con- con- uh, consequential is not exactly what I was. Has a finality to it. Is really where where I'm going. So it's it's, it's cool because it's the more standardization, the the more collaboration across teams and orgs and businesses we can. Yeah. So I like it.
3: Yeah, and kudos for Hashi for, you know, doing what their customers want instead of trying to
0: control an a uh, ecosystem. Yeah. Well, are they going to kill Sentinel or are they going to have both offerings available?
2: They, I, I haven't read anything very specific that they're going to kill off um, Sentinel. And the way, from just my previous experience of, of using the enterprise product, uh, the way that Sentinel hooks in, it's it's pretty easy to, to support multiple layers. So they don't have to make a choice.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, so really, I mean, it's coming down to Terraform and Pulumi, right? Because Pulumi is using a different uh, policy as code language, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't think it's based on OPA. So, I mean, really, there's it continues to be this battle between Terraform and Pulumi <laughs> and then everybody else. Mm. Uh, but again, you know, Terraform continues to show that they're continuing to adopt uh, main standards and open source things and, and being good stewards of those things. So, it, I don't know anybody who's actually using Pulumi. I'd sort of be curious pros and cons for someone who's actually done it. But, uh, you know, continue to see Terraform just running away with the space for infrastructure as code. Yeah, I, I I know people that have, you know, dabbled with Pulumi and used it,
2: you know, and I've played around with it like at a very hello world sort of level. But um in general, like I, I, I like codified infrastructure that I could evaluate. Um and and so like I, I tend to shy away from that sort of mechanism where it's generated sort of at deployment time.
1: Which is the same reason you don't use CDK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm on that I'm on that bandwagon as well. Sorry. No, all good. Uh, well, why we went with you know OPA, which made a lot of sense to me. Uh, Hashicorp this week followed up with two other announcements, which I sort of was more puzzled about. Uh, so the first one is Hermes, which is an open source document management system. Uh, apparently, Hashi has a strong writing culture, uh, per this blog post. Although I by looking at their docs, I disagree, but it's fine. They apparently think uh, writing things down <laughs> improves ideas and processes, but they also have beliefs, uh, believe a culture of writing is a necessity for a fast-growing global and remote oriented organization. Uh, as the company has grown, they have created new ways for teams to create and share documents amongst themselves and across the entire organization. Hermes is their internally built scalable document management system designed to help Hashi employees author, review, approve, discover, and deprecate documents. And now it's open source for the rest of you to use it. Uh, written in Golang and leveraging a PostgreSQL background, backend and an Algolia full-text search engine. Uh, this is all available to you now. And in addition to that, they also announced Helios, which is their new open-source product design system. And you think product design, that sounds fancy. That means that you've never used HashiCorp products before, number one. And number two, this is really just for UX and Figma, and no one here at the CloudPod likes the front end. So we're not going to talk <laughs> about it further than that, but uh, that's available if you are interested in it you can go check out Helios uh, as well. But, you know, overall, I don't I don't get this. So, like, looking at the screenshots, and, and I admit that I did not download it to play within a Docker container, um, you know, it looks like it's the front end to workspaces, Google workspaces, with a bunch of templates and some forms that kind of do things. And and I look at this and I just say, well, why didn't you just buy Notion? <laughs> it seems like a much better play uh, or any of the other bajillion document management systems that kind of exist out there in the market. Uh, why? Why would you, as a company of HashiCorp size and, and Scape say that you know we need to own our own of this? I I don't get it. So I'm I'm curious uh, what your guys' thoughts are, but I I don't stick to Terraform, please. Let's just do that, shall we? And maybe make your docs on your website better. I'll take those I mean, two things.
0: Maybe they're as sick as uh, as everyone else's uh, of uh, searching Confluence.
1: Well, that's fair. <laughs> I, I get I get that, but again, like there's Notion, there's OneNote, there's Evernote, there's all kinds of products out there that do documentation and these kinds of things at scale. I mean, a, do is there? Because
2: like when you think about like I've got two experiences, right? Like where I've I've started at a company that was recently rolling out G Suite and they all their documentation's in Google Docs. And it's impossible to find anything. Right. It's and so the the management layer of like a workflow and approval thing like that's, you know, you can track history, but you couldn't control anything. And and the generalized search is really difficult to do. So then you're, yeah, you can use something like confluence, which has a built-in wiki, but then you're beholden to sort of that ecosystem and, you know, whatever plugins are directly, you know, supported by the Atlassian marketplace. And I can kind of see why, you know, you'd want to build your own solution. Um, That said, I don't know if it was wise. You know, I want a lot of things,
0: <laughs> especially
2: deprecating documents when they're
0: when they're old. I mean, based on releases and deployments done by Terraform, you could automatically deprecate old support documents, update old, uh, up, you know, update support documentation so that what's publicly visible is only what's currently relevant anymore. Because that's that's been a criticism of like the internet for about thirty years now. Is you can still Google things and find things that are completely outdated. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of like that as a feature, at least.
2: Yeah. I mean, the most sophisticated document workflow I've ever seen used Jenkins and uh, and GitHub markup, and you know that was you know using the PR flow for the approval, and then sort of the promotion being just orchestrated by random thing. It was actually pretty sweet, but you know, I, if I was hashy and building a service, I probably would have just done that.
0: I think I just heard you say something done in Jenkins was was quite sweet. I'm like, wow,
1: that's
2: yeah. It was a long time ago. I was younger. Than... <laughs>
1: Nice. I needed the money. Are you feeling okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a family to feed.
3: <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, I think that you make some good points that there are some features that would really be valuable and that this area could use someone doing a better job. But I can't imagine, like you can't do everything well. And so it seems a little outside of uh, Hashi's sweet spot to me uh, to be focusing on, hopefully. Uh, it doesn't detract. You know, you can only do so many things well before you start doing everything not so well.
1: Yeah. Well, you had to wonder in this uh, day and age of cost cutting and things, and people saying, "Why are we doing dumb things?" Is this is this an open source play on this? Like, well, if we open source that, maybe someone else will take adoption of it, and we don't have to maintain it anymore. <laughs> mm, yeah. Really? Maybe um, that. Right. We're yeah. just seeding. Yeah, that'd I mean, be great. That'd be fine.
2: Mm-hmm. But...
1: All right. Well, let's move to AWS. AWS CloudTrail Lake supports ingesting activity events from non-AWS sources uh, because, of course, they couldn't let you just do that to CloudTrail natively because then, you know, that would just break CloudTrail. Uh, so by giving you a service that you pay for by the gigabyte, uh, you can now upload that data directly into the CloudTrail Lake uh, aggregating and immutably store your activity events and run SQL-based queries for search analytics. Customers uh, wanted the complexity of adding their own custom data or integrating with third-party data to get a more full picture of the organization's compliance and security posture. Uh, so now with this capability, you can set up custom events uh, with your own code or just click on with an integration with one of the many providers, including CrowdStrike, GitHub, Kong, LaunchDarkly, Okta, and SNCC. Uh, so all available able to you now. To add to your cloud trail data lake and never look at it again. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of something you could always have done. Hopefully, yeah.
0: always have done. They're just giving it a new name, or they've just they've just given it a name, given that set of uh, tools a name. So it's kind of, I guess, maybe they're going to go out into the uh, sim market and compete with Chronicle and other things like that because pretty much that's what Chronicle does: data lake with with uh, queries bolted on the front.
2: I mean, it's all just data that's you know
1: and it's different ways of querying it right and and getting that out in a lot of ways you see there was this thing called a data lake and it was a place where you could take all of your data and you put it into the lake and then security came along and said well that's nice and all but we can't put our data in that lake we need our own lake and then they said well that's fine you can do that but you we spent three years developing this cloud data lake so you're gonna to have to go do that. And they said, Yeah, yeah, we don't we don't have developers on security. So then they went to my the Amazon just heard all this and said, Well, we'll just create a custom version of a data lake and we'll call it security data lake. Uh, and that's how this can be born. Mm-hmm. So this and is and they for, charge more than the yeah, other. Yeah, and one. they can charge more money for it. <laughs> and everybody who ran the original data lake is like, You guys are idiots, and you're paying a fortune for this thing. I already could have given you, but you refuse because it wasn't security or didn't have the word security in the title. So now it does. And security teams are buying this like cock kicks, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the story. I mean, just think if there was some kind of open standard for, uh,
0: for security events, which they did announce like six months ago, maybe. That would be <laughs> ideal for, for, for bringing data into a, a, a Cloud Trail data lake.
1: Imagine, imagine that, right? Imagine yeah. that. Weird. Mm. All right, next up, deployment pipeline reference architecture and reference implementations are now available to you from AWS. Deployment pipeline will automate the building, testing and deploying of applications to AWS infrastructure. And they said, uh, the author, Sebastian Stormack, basically talked about the great documentation that AWS website has, which, again, that's a stretch. <laughs> but uh, what you know, he points out, rightfully so, is that the documentation times is limited if you're trying to translate it to very complex concepts or you know, a highly scaled version of that implementation. And so with these new best practices, their intent is to provide lessons learned uh, from the overall collective knowledge of all AWS customers, give you solutions to the most complex of issues. And they've started out with a very nice set of uh, application build, test, and deploy architectures, uh, give you a nice couple uh, diagrams, what that looks like, talk about the business outcomes, and they dive into different parts of the well architecture framework to help you define each of these portions. And our first complex issue will be
3: uh, deploying a Hello World PHP app.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so there's none of that. <laughs> Didn't see any of those. Well, it's
2: Java Spring Boot. It's not far off. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> if you go into the reference implementations that are on the website uh, and into the you know, our application pipeline that's there, yeah, they do give you local development patterns, they give you source patterns, build, tests for beta, tests for gamma, and then a prod give you kind of the pipeline view of it, the different parts, portions of it. And I assume this will get beefed out a little bit more as they continue to develop it. But hey, I, I'll take it. Anything is better than staring at the documentation trying to understand, like, how would I scale that? <laughs> fun question you always answer.
0: I mean, isn't it just pointing towards Codestar, which is supposed to be solved the same thing?
1: No, I mean, I think that that's
2: the big difference. Like, Amazon will give you 16 different ways to do the same thing, right? And so this is... This isn't pointing at a specific Amazon service. You can configure your all of the Amazon services to to fit this, right? And so, yeah, there's there is stuff like CodeStar and even to a, a, a lesser extent Elastic Beanstalk and and Light Sail, you know, which can give you sort of a CICD pipeline light sort of workflow. And but you know, it's it really is more about the management, like defining your environments and the separation of those environments type of reference architecture. Which is great. I mean, I think it's, you know, a lot of companies, um, you know, maybe they're getting started and don't have maturity in house to sort of have that. And so this is a reference that people can use. And so hopefully this avoids, you know, companies from sort of just automating what the sysadmin did for years, you know, like, which is where a lot of companies start when they get into CIC.
3: You don't like a, like a uh, macro from a screen
2: capture. (laughs) Or, you know, uh, Jenkins just running a shell script, you know, like, yeah, sweet.
1: CICD, yo. Who doesn't love good good CICD? Mm-hmm. That's all you need. Solves all problems. Uh, and our final AWS story for tonight is uh, AWS is making you contiguous IPv6 classless interdomain routing blocks available with VPC IPAM address manager. Manager. But then IPAM customers can create IPv6 publicly scoped pools and provision with BYOP CIDR blocks and continuous blocks we use for sequential VPC creation. Ciders can then be aggregated into a single entry across networking and security constructs like extra lists, route tables, security groups, and firewalls. And really what all this does is remind me of back in the day when we said we'll never run out of IP addresses. So we'll issue a whole slash eight to the Boeing company and a whole slash eight to, uh, you know, IBM. And then hope for the best. So this is great. Thanks for giving me contiguous IP blocks to you now ruin all my lives. You know, and my kids, my kids will suffer. Yeah. Now those are the
3: most like valuable assets on those companies' books. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it makes sense because without aggregating rules for the, for those massive ipv 6 blocks, the file firewalls would just be completely overwhelmed with individual rules. Yeah.
1: Yeah, at least now they can
2: summarize. Yeah,
1: but you know, it is interesting to me the idea of like, yeah, I'm going to have a contiguous set of blocks, and I'm going to have firewall rules that are that big uh, that I'm going to allow an entire IPv6 slash uh, forty access to a, a something. I'm like, I'm like, what? What security team approved this? <laughs> that's, that's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah, I just want zero trust.
2: A uh, security team would be very quick to approve the deny of that large contiguous block. Yes. Yeah, I think that's. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's that's true. The deny (laughs) side of it is probably more accurate. Uh, Well, Google had nothing worthy of us to talk about today, except for the fact they announced Google Cloud Next is coming back to in-person. This year, it'll be in August 29th through the 31st. So those of you who have kids who start school in September, you are screwed because you're not bringing them to Moscone Center. (laughs) Uh, this will be at the Moscone Center of course in downtown San Francisco meaning all your hotel rooms will cost at least $400 a night I did look today trying to book one just to have one for hold and uh, yeah they were very expensive and I said well there's got to be a room block coming later right and hoping for the best Yeah. (laughs) Uh, this will be the first in-person Google Next since 2019 and after a few lackluster years of events let's hope this time they knock it out of the park uh, because I won't pay for it in 2024 if it's bad (laughs) yeah
0: i'm not I'm not seeing it I'm not feeling it not with massive layoffs
1: <laughs> yeah lay off 10% of your workforce and then deliver a lot of Google next in august good luck to you <laughs>
2: i'll I'll have long forgotten
1: right by August that's the goal right the, the wow me of
2: features between now and then right right
1: sure. <laughs> You hope so. I'm also going through the annual, all of your account teams are rotating uh, yeah, era yeah. of January. Uh, so, you know, my new Amazon team, my new Google team, and all that. And it's just like, yeah, so uh, tickets for this? They're like, yeah, we're not even, we haven't even found where the seat is yet So have that conversation. So, <laughs> but they have, they have not made them public either. So, I'll wait until April, probably when they go on sale. Well, if Azure and being on Azure isn't enough chaos for you, Uh, There are new features for the Azure Chaos Studio this week. You can now uh, apparently insert yourself into a containerized workload that will run in your VNet that does not allow access with public endpoints. So that's a great security hole. Thanks for that. Dynamic targeting is now available uh, to allow you to easily target resources by availability zone. Uh, The Chaos is now available in Australia East, which means some bank who's an Azure customer yelled really loud to get this. (laughs) Service tags have been enabled, and new faults are available to you now, including a new version of the shutdown, because shutdown 1.0 was not shut down any enough. There's now shutdown 2.0, which adds that dynamic targeting. And then a new Key Vault certificate fault, including increment certificate versioning, disable certificates, and update your search policy, all available to you in the Chaos Studio, which is very similar to this podcast studio. Tonight, hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got nothing. I'm like,
2: woo, chaos! <laughs> chaos is fun.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, if you ever wondered how Microsoft runs Microsoft on Azure, uh, there's a 20 minute video that give you none of the details you actually care about, and all of the high level ones you can now watch on YouTube. Uh, This is, uh, of course, Microsoft is the number one customer of Azure, for obvious reasons, just like Amazon is the number one customer of AWS. Uh, So the new blog post kind of highlights some of the struggles and challenges of running Microsoft on Azure. Uh, And the 22-minute video walks through some of the techniques, some of the tools, how they save money, all the things that might interest you if you're in the Azure ecosystem. Uh, I tried to watch this video. Uh, It's very well done. The gentleman who was hosting it is very nice, but I uh, could not get through the whole thing because I just didn't care enough about Azure. but for our listeners, I'm sure they'll care enough to watch the whole thing. Oh, that sounds pretty good. I'll watch it. Yeah. And it's always
2: good to see how, you know, customer customers or companies of that scale sort of go through the decision process, um, you know, to see what's important at that scale, to see how you, what kind of trade-offs you're going to have to make for, you know, hosting things a, a separate way. Like, it, you know, it's rare they go into enough detail to where you get a really, you know, holistic picture, but it is sort of neat. To think because most 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 of us don't work at a company anywhere near the size of Microsoft.
1: Yep, I mean the the guy who's hosting the video his name is Pete Apple. I mean that's just an awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got a great smile too. Yeah, he's the principal <laughs> TPM architect at Microsoft, so definitely worth checking out. I will finish it later. I, I just technically ran out of time because it was record time for the show, so I'll get I'll get back to that later. But um, definitely, you know, anything you can learn if you're in that space is important. And then Oracle makes their first 2023 appearance here on the Cloud Pod this week with two fantastic stories that are just going to wow all of you. I'm convinced. <laughs> if you ever asked yourself, you know, hey, what's the Oracle equivalent service to something like AWS SageMaker? Oracle has made you a handy comparison chart. You can't miss out on that. Uh, I will say that this chart is sort of helpful as long as you uh, only understand a couple of rules about the chart. Number one... It does have all three competitors. So AWS, Azure, and GCP are all there. And if Oracle has a service and they do not have a service, they will have a blank spot right there showing you that they don't have it. Now, if Amazon, Azure, and GCP have a service that Oracle doesn't have, it does not exist. So just remember that. so I did, you know, take a look, and I, I was curious what some of the competitive products were. And so I looked up SageMaker. So SageMaker apparently is competitive with uh, Oracle DataFlow Notebooks, or Oracle Data Labeling, or Oracle ML Pipelines, or Oracle Data Science, which I think is a, meant to be a product, but is not just a, a thought of being. But I don't know Oracle Data Science. Uh, I said, well, that was a little too easy. Uh, So I went with uh, Comprehend, another uh, popular service uh, for no one on AWS, that apparently they have uh, on Oracle with Document Understanding, which is a great service name, Document Understanding, and Language, which is apparently the second Oracle service that would come. So you get one service on AWS and two services on, on Oracle to do the same work. So that's always fun. You get to stitch things together. Always a fun time for me, and then uh, the last one I thought was I'll throw Airflow at it. Uh, Airflow, of course, is uh, managed uh, in GCP. It's called Composer. Uh, apparently, in Oracle, it's called Oracle Process Automation and Workflow in beta. Again, two services do the same thing as GCP, uh, so that's always appreciative. I also learned that uh, they think that uh, Apache Kafka somehow was a competitor of this as well on on AWS. But you know, details of this chart are subject to interpretation. And so, do keep that in mind as you think about it further. Uh, But this is available to you, and then so you know, there's uh, it's searchable. You can you can put words in there, and it finds them for you, which is always a plus for a searchable box. And so, yeah, if you ever wanted dreamed of having a a list of all of the cloud services uh, ever in existence curated by Oracle that only have competitive products to Oracle products, this is the chart for you.
2: Oracle has a product called Fast Provisioning Database, and its key feature is that it's a quickly provisioned database—a
1: hmm. database with accelerated provisioning time. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah,
2: yeah. I just can't
0: get over Document Understanding. Document yeah. Understanding sounds like it sounds like they put the the competitors' product names into uh, you know Google Translate, and they went to like English Spanish English Spanish English Spanish, and finally landed up on, on English again. It's like ah, Document Understanding—that's a great name. Yeah.
3: yeah chat yeah. tell me if i if oracle created a product that competed with comprehend what would it be called document <laughs>
1: understanding it just i mean it's, it just rolls off the tongue like i got i mean other than that i have now made fun of it mercilessly for the last five minutes and it will come to me instantly now in the future uh if other than this i would never have known that so but uh, I, did, I did notice our next story is also in this chart as well. Uh, and so there's uh, apparently, and I, I don't know how I missed this the first time because this would have been made fun of a lot already. <laughs> uh, Oracle joined the club of giving us services we don't want with the new Web3 capabilities on uh, OCI. Uh, I didn't even know they had it, like I said. Uh, but it's been a long, around long enough that this is version 22.4.2 wow. of the Oracle blockchain platform and its low-code blockchain app builder which provides you several new capabilities, which I will not detail because I can't be bothered to talk about this beyond that. But going back to our chart, non-fungible token or NFTs apparently has NFT on Oracle blockchain as a service and AWS, Azure, and GCP don't have a competitive product, which is just, you know, shocking, shocking, I tell you. So if you're interested in Web3 and losing a lot of money, potentially on blockchain, uh, or, you know, you have a solution that works on blockchain. OCI might be your partner for you. Just saying, we can make an NFT of our of our little uh, recording here. We could sell it. Yeah, we could sell it. We could know. five million dollars. <laughs> I just know that it will take more effort for me to figure out how to do that than it's worth to me. No matter how much we sell it for, <laughs> or how much I pay someone else to buy it for me, one of the two.
2: So the you know, the release notes I'm looking through, like the, the 20 is the year. So the yeah, first release that was, was year. July 2020. Yeah. And it started at 3.1 as their
1: first release. So,
2: because
1: eh, it's Web 3, right? Makes sure. <laughs> it does support OAuth 2, which doesn't feel very Web 3.0, but it's, <laughs> one, of the, it's one of the features.
2: Yeah, I, I get very confused on what this actually does. Um, but I mean, that that's... True for most conversations about blockchain and Web three in general,
1: but you know, Ryan, there's a low code blockchain app builder, so you don't actually have to know all those fancy words. Yeah. You just
2: use the low code thing. Yeah, that just sounds like I could put money in a hole and burn it. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's good.
0: Have you been waiting months and months to hire a new AWS GCP Azure architect, only to have them be poached at the eleventh hour by a startup with a juice bar initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice.
1: All right, well, let's move on to the cloud journey. And uh, this week, we are here talking about networking and VPCs, uh, which is a riveting topic for anybody who's (laughs) ever been in networking. Uh, and really, you know, your cloud center of excellence has a lot of work to do uh, in establishing your landing zone, and VPC is going to be a lot of time spent, uh, particularly on this topic. Uh, but I, I like to start by asking Peter, because he's a consultant, what's a VPC? Virtual private cloud. It's
3: like your data center network, but cloudy.
2: <laughs> but cloudy.
3: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, you you're you've got to... you've got a cider block and it uh of private ip addresses and then you can treat that just like you would a data center with uh, gateways routing in between um subnets uh acls between subnets uh and then gateways out to uh, route to public networks or other private networks
1: got it you know the uh i'm gonna go on a rat hole here just because this is one of my favorite topics of cloud Uh, is that the VPC didn't exist when Amazon started. <laughs> and, yeah. and there was this uh, easy Well, they, they rebranded it, it was just called the cloud at one point, but then they rebranded it to easy Two classic. Uh, and the whole idea was that you didn't need a VPC. You didn't need, you know, to designate firewall or routes or to worry about subnetting or worry about any of these things. You would just have this box that would live on the internet and it would have a firewall and that firewall would be its only way in and out of it. Uh, and then, if you wanted to connect multiple of these things together, you just connect them together, and you put them in security groups. And they and this was the whole design of the entire cloud at the early days of, of EC2, uh, which I was a doubter at this time in my my career, an IT guy, and going, "You guys are idiots. No one's ever going to use that." Uh, but they got some success for a while with that EC2 classic thing, and then finally realized that they were never going to get into enterprise unless they could provide you routing. IP addresses and subnetting. And I sort of wish that they had reinvented the paradigm versus just taking the one that we all knew and making something more cloudy. But, you know, here we are in 2023, still dealing with subnetting, routing, and ACLs. I think EC2, the original
3: classic EC2, was a reimagination. And it was very closely aligned with zero-trust networks. But it's like, okay, now we just created a huge barrier to people adopting this platform and migrating their legacy workloads here, because then they have to transform them. So instead, let's build something that looks like uh, where they're from, so they could move from their data center
0: into our cloud. I kind of describe it as a, as a slightly higher level and say that the VPC, although yes, it's fundamentally revolves around networking and connecting services. It's uh, I think like think of it more as a a, a partition of. Of uh, the cloud, in you know the, the cloud in general, you know it's a it's a tenant of of the multi tenant um, solutions which are provided because VPC is not only it's not only subnets. If you th- think about it, all the, all the services are tied back to a VPC. Permissions are tied to a VPC. Everything's tied to a VPC. I think um, it's it's not just the network.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's an underpinning service of of everything in the cloud, at least in AWS's cloud in this case. And so it is, you know, you do see it f- pop up in all kinds of places. And even things that you wouldn't expect to be tied to the VPC require you to specify the VPC because it's, it's all underpinning everything. <laughs> it's, it's almost as fundamental and foundational as IAM is. And, and really, there is not a single service in AWS that does not rely on IAM and the VPC in some design aspect to it. Um, even managed services that lived outside of your VPC still required you to tell it what the VPC was that it was going to talk to so it could provide security access control. Um, so it is. It is a really amazing piece of technology. And this, and really, when you think about the big, the big, big things that Amazon did to invent cloud computing, the networking layer is probably one of the most sophisticated and most interesting, impressive parts of the whole thing. Especially for those of us who lived in data center world back in the day, doing with what we were dealing with. Could you, you know, if you had told your network guy, um, "I'm going to need you to support uh, a million, v, you know, basically a million VLANs," their heads would have imploded on you.
2: <laughs> yeah especially with like the tooling available, right? And the management, like it's, you know, technology has moved on, but so many of those tools just only understood that classic networking scheme that came out of the 70s, right? And it's still the case, largely today. <laughs> so, slightly better, not, not fully. Yeah, I mean, VPC does sort of have parallels with the old
0: data center. Um, architecture though because you know EC2 Classic there was no trusted Intel network so everything was pub- public IP only and I think it was very much evident that there was a need for a trusted space a trusted network between hosts just just to simplify things I mean can you imagine defining security groups and also scaling with EC2 Classic I mean it would just be uh,
1: impossible it would have been yeah. hard yeah incredibly difficult would it?
2: I mean, it's just adding a security group is really all you need for that, and that's it. that construct is still there with VPCs.
1: Each server had its own security group, if I recall. So, if you auto scaled a hundred servers, you would need you'd have a hundred new security groups that you'd have to then plumb together and allow access to each other.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I never used EC2 Classic, so I. I, I I'm at a little bit
2: of a disadvantage, and, and
1: even my memory yeah. is a little fuzzy of it at this point because I mean it's been so long. So I'm I, that may be incorrect, but uh, I, I do remember there was no idea of auto scaling back in those days, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was and you you know things were very static uh, in the model. So I don't think that that was uh, something you could do. I mean, I, I
0: think security groups sort were of a thing, but but maybe not so much the customer facing side of, of the issues, but underlying that, Amazon are now managing traditional firewall yeah. appliances based on your security group and the number of hosts in them and everything else. I think VPC was was the evolution that had to happen so they could scale to millions of customers with you know tens of millions of hosts and services attached to it.
2: Yeah, from a product yeah. perspective, it was probably pretty, you know, the customers are demanding it and it's probably the only way we're going to be able to manage this. You know, it makes sense.
3: I had no problem with EC2 Classic. <laughs> I didn't.
1: Yeah. I just thought VPC is required for backward compatibility. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of it's sort of interesting now in the Zero Trust world that they they basically deprecated EC2 Classic. You can't get it anymore unless you mm-hmm. had an account that predates uh, the existence of VPCs. Uh, and it, it's sort of interesting, you know, because you wonder now in this new world if, if EC2 Classic with a slightly different design would be effective in the Zero Trust model. And I think it would be. Yeah. And you sort of wonder, is that the reason why AWS hasn't really gone down the zero trust quite as heavily as others cuz they're like yeah we're not we don't want to go play that game again quite yet. Yeah, so. yeah. It's
3: just it's not in their best interest. It, it, what's in their best interest is to get the whatever 70% of workloads that are still in the data center into the cloud. The easiest way to do that is to
1: make it look as much like the data center as possible. Exactly. All right. Let's take us back to the cloud landing zone and, and thinking about our VPC structure here. So, you know, typically in a single account, um, and we'll talk about accounts and projects next week, just to kind of why we're not covering this in depth today. But basically, in a single account, you had to define, you know, your CIDR blocks. You had to define your subnets. You had to break them up between availability zones, uh, if they're, you know, so you can basically have IP ranges in each of those. And you need to think about a couple of different things in the CCOE. You need to think about your use case. Is it Kubernetes? Is it going to be EC2 instances, is it going to be uh, managed services? How are those managed services going to connect to your particular systems, and how may you want to think about that as you progress, because those will become sharp edges that cut you later, (laughs) if not properly thought about. That's very true. <laughs> you can expand.
3: You didn't leave much room for us to correct you. Yeah. as the problem? <laughs> you can take it to the next
0: step. <laughs> I, have a, I have opinions on the whole thing, but it's not really, you know, in line with any any tradition. I, I really think the day of of uh, uh, you know one massive IP space contiguous throughout the whole company with everything allocated, it should go away. It absolutely, should go away. I don't think there's any need anymore to have individually addressable um, hosts. When there are so many alternate options out there for, for managing said hosts, you know you got the SSM for example. Um, you don't necessarily need to be able to connect to any single host from any other host in the network. In in the microservices deployments, they're they're, they're small, very very tightly coupled to, to their own dependencies, and you could deploy those in their own very small VPC, just just size just perfectly, and you expose the um, the, the, the public endpoint using uh, either a private endpoint or or um, service mesh of some kind. BPC lattice, as announced uh, um, recently. So, I mean, my my wish would be that we'd we no longer have to manage these massive address spaces, ten dot something slash eight, anymore, and that individual services would deploy their own uh, BPCs and manage those things, and they just hook into the network as needed. That's not the
1: reality. Well, you, you were you were here earlier, and we talked about contiguous IPv6 blocks, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean that. The- well, but you, in in that model, you don't really need a large contiguous thing. What you need is just to to not try to make everything a unique, you know, snowflake on that network. And so you're you're largely, it's largely an extension of the EC2 classic where your your all of your IPs are within that VPC contract, and you're very tightly controlling the access in and out. Um, and so it's just not at a server level anymore; it's at a VPC level, and it's you know it's. It it really helps with you know scaling and and communication and coordination across enterprise, and it's a, it's a really good model. Um, but because so many internal processes and and teams are still very tied to that IP being that identifying resource of of that something, it becomes very challenging to to get to that model within a within a company.
1: It's also because of the way that, again, we talk about how interlinked these things are, it's hard to change your VPC model. <laughs> so typically to redeploy your VPCs or really your foundational landing zone, you end up having to basically destroy everything and recreate it or create parallel and move over to it over time, which never actually happens.
2: Mm-hmm. Then, uh, then you just have two.
1: Yeah, then you just have two, <laughs> two VPCs or, or those type of issues. So you 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 want to be thinking, I agree with Jonathan, but you also have to be thinking about like this VPC design. That you need to be able to have some flexibility and change as part of that, um, you know, overall design. And you need to factor in, like, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to have one VPC, am I going to have multiple VPCs? And if I have multiple VPCs, how do I make them talk to each other? Do I use peering? Do I use something else? Um, and that needs to be factored into your design thinking as well. So this, again, going back to the kind of the center of excellence construct, you have know, this is your architect and your networking people and the spreadsheet of IP addresses that your company's maintained since Christ was a choir boy, uh, all working together <laughs> to come up with a design and a model that makes sense, uh, which may lead you eventually to a multi-account strategy which we'll talk about next week. But you know, ultimately, this is the key foundational piece of everything you're going to do in the future. And it's dependent on your account strategy. It's dependent on the number
3: of regions you have to be in. The whole concept, at least in AWS, of a VPC lives in a region in an account means that if you're partitioning your um, if you're creating blast uh, radiuses via accounts or via regions that by definition you're creating uh, some minimum number of VPCs that potentially have to communicate with each other and if they do then you got to you got to plan for that
0: well, in the GCP world, I mean they, they you can have a global VPC, but, but yeah, you still have to assign so nice. subnets. yeah, 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 but it's it's a marketing thing. You still have to assign subnets to individual regions. all, yeah. all it means is all it means is you, you can call it one VPC and you get this magic network in between regions, and I absolutely love that out of the box. Right. However, it comes it comes with its own challenges. Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, well, I need I need uh, a few extra addresses in this region. And I can't have them because now it's, I've got no room left in the, in the cider block anymore, which is why I think you, know, you need to make these things disposable.
3: But I could do blast radius with projects and then have all the projects live on the, in the same subnet, right? If they're in one region. Whereas in Amazon, blast radius would happen via accounts. And then I would have to have multiple VPCs, even if they're all in the same availability zone. That's the thing I like about the Google network. Right, it's this. It's completely separate from the API uh, blast
2: radius. So I mean, until it isn't, because when you get into VPC service controls and that kind of stuff, it all sort of starts mapping back to that VPC construct, like Jonathan was saying. Like it becomes such, it goes back to the underpinning sort of organizational container of your cloud resources. I mean, it's you know, like now that transit gateway exists like i you know like i can kind of see both models before transit gateway you know connectivity within amazon between multiple accounts and multiple VPCs. Impossible. was impossible yeah. it was too difficult right yeah. and so you know like it's you know the the i the idea behind the the global vpc that's shared across projects is was really appealing in gcp but yeah now now working in that ecosystem you start seeing sort of the uh same sort of challenges of, you know, like you still have to do a lot of the same legwork that you didn't really want to by creating multiple VPCs. And so even in one, it's still sort of the same sort of thing. And it's challenging, right? Because different teams have different business needs and you're trying to manage this as a central resource.
3: Yeah. And and Transit Gateway effectively is saying, we're going to let you make multiple VPCs into one VPC, which is awesome. Thank you.
2: Amazon. Well, it's you know, and I like the model where you're declaratively saying these things can talk to these other things, right? Yeah, so I like that, you know, and and I wish the the global network of GCP had a little bit more of that. Like they're getting there; they're releasing new features with the resource tags that are allowing um, that sort of thing. But it's still the connectivity is a little. I don't know. It's it's a it can it can get more opaque depending on your implementation very quick. Yeah. Yeah.
3: That's the other thing. There's so many ways to do this. So many ways Mm -hmm. to do it the wrong way. Like, there's a lot of good ways. There's not the best way. There's a lot of good ways, and there's a lot of bad ways.
2: Yeah, I've seen. I seem to be going through every single one of the bad ways as I (laughs) I learn these
1: things. (laughs) I think the key thing on the the bad ways and the good ways is this is where your partner can really play a big part of this because they've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And then you know Amazon or GCP or Azure should be able to provide some level of guidance and some direction to you so you aren't completely left in the dark for your CCOE to figure this out from scratch. Because again, you know thousands of companies have gone through this VPC design problem. They know the use cases. They know which of those good ideas are good for your organization versus the ones that are not good for your organization or the really bad ones. Uh, and if you ignore your partner or your uh, Google or Amazon friends, that may cause you some challenges at times.
0: And I know that I will say that you know best practices are all about high availability and make sure you're deploying multiple zones, and especially if you have things like databases, Elasticsearch, um, that are very chatty between nodes in a cluster, that can become very expensive. So you know when when you do design your VPC networking, make sure you you are aware of the costs involved in cross zone communication because it's not free, and hmm. uh, it can be quite significant. So perhaps in non-prod environments, you, you you have one or two at the most zones and in production you have two
1: or three yeah one of the other things that you will want to think about with your vpc is what are your security requirements for it and that's probably going to come around two areas in particular interest to security or three actually one is going to be acls and security groups and how do those work and so security groups of course are local firewalls to servers uh, but acls are kind of their own unique animal onto their own and i'll let uh maybe Jonathan talk about ACLs.
2: Yes. <laughs> don't, don't, don't use ACLs.
1: <laughs> yeah, really. Don't do it. Don't they're, do they're it. They're
0: stateless. They're stateless. They have yeah. they have no place in um in in the world with uh with
2: security groups to replace that same functionality. They have one good use case. One, deny Deny rules. Is a, a blanket, general statement <laughs> deny that you can point all of your compliance controls to, yeah. so that you can allow your application dev teams the ability to manage security groups directly without having to to do any kind of audit control. So manage your manage your isolation and your compliance boundaries as a holistic platform as a service to the rest of your company, and and get out of the way. Because, like, if you try to tightly control the network, and how else do you blacklist one IP address incoming to your network?
0: Yeah, it's well, they're, they're within VPCs though. So, I mean, by the time it's made it through a load balancer or some other or a WAF service or something else, it's you've already kind of missed a chance, haven't you, on things like that?
3: Now, well, you put on your public um, on your public subnet uh, deny incoming rule on one IP address right? You just eliminated a bad actor from getting anywhere inside
2: your network.
1: Yeah. You didn't even get, you didn't even get it into the waf at that point. Cause it got blocked at the VPC perimeter. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I mean,
2: there's, there's valid reasons, right? You want to, you want to, for protective reasons, you want to have everything go through a bump in the wire. You can, you can do that enforcement and you know, you can control that in a way from a centralized perspective where you can remove that burden from the rest of your company. Uh, you know the bigger things it makes a lot of sense but don't try to command and control the access between applications or between environments because that's an application concern
1: yeah so going back to our security thoughts so acls we one you get to spend some time explaining to security why they shouldn't get too granular there and having taken that scar uh do not <laughs> recommend <laughs> uh, <laughs> The other one is going to be VPC full logs, which is kind of the the bare minimum security visibility of how things are moving through the system. And it's the only thing we had for a long time um, until they came out with bump in the wire or the ability to basically do uh, streaming of all the packets that go through a VPC into, into a specific server or a group of servers behind a, a network and con- a load balancer to basically process all this massive amounts of data. And I will tell you that if that is what your security team wants, really push back until they force you to do it, <laughs> and then show them what it's going to cost you to run mm-hmm. bump on the wire in the right way, uh, and then also to process the billions of data data points that you're going to get from this type of technology, because it's a massive amount of traffic, because every packet to every host will be replicated in triplicate, (laughs) basically to all of your systems to basically be processed and worked through. And most of the time you don't need it. Uh, But some security teams do for the right security reasons. Um, And so if that's something that they want, just because they think it's easy, push back until you get the real requirement and why you really need it and then turn it on. And for the love of all that's holy, if they recommend
2: that you take that bump in the wire and then use that as your control point for everything in your cloud, do not. Do not say
3: yes. I mean, we've had plenty of uh, customers who required high trust certified uh, workloads, uh, FedRAMP workloads, PCI workloads. All of them got certified without bumping the wire. So because they got certified before bumping the wire existed. So there you go. Which
1: is amazing.
0: Yeah. And that's part of the, part of the problem with, with the security service from is if a tool's available, then they must have it. You know, yeah yeah more, more security <laughs> we, we got to be as secure as we possibly can we got to have everything yeah
1: yeah and it'll also cost you an arm and a leg and blow out all your budgets. So make sure you pass that cost back to your security team
3: <laughs> yeah what security tool are we going to invent that doesn't exist
1: that nobody needs that 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 everyone
2: will then be required to have <laughs> <laughs> I think you might just explain the entire security <laughs> of like industry for applications. Like that just makes a lot of sense. Uh,
0: <laughs> there's a reason why there's so many, so many common uh um popular names who make a startup cash out, make a startup cash out, make a startup cash out in the in that in that industry. They they know how to play
1: the system. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh another thing to think about with your VPCs that we didn't touch on was uh connectivity back to your private data center. Uh, so there's a couple different ways to do that. One is a VPN connection through your transit gateway or a direct connect point to point that goes directly from a third party or from your data center into the cloud's provider itself. And so that's a way to get uh, off Internet, low latency, low jitter uh, connectivity directly to the cloud to make your workload movements much, much easier.
3: Yeah, go uh, go direct connect. Yeah.
2: Boo VPN. <laughs>
1: Remember the days where it was
2: a whole bunch of like open swan servers Uh, to connect everything? I I uh. (laughs) did.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, The one one thing about the VPN, the reason why all my co-hosts are all cringing at the word VPN is because there are very draconian old limits that exist in VPN and AWS. I don't know if they're the same limits in Azure and in GCP. I haven't looked in a while because I try not to do this either anymore. But uh, I think it was like 2048 megabits per second was the maximum you could do on vpn for a long time and then it it got peaked up a little bit with some some optimizations you could make but like it just doesn't scale and it's a again it's a very legacy technology you'll end up multiplexing vpns but then you'll find out there's a limit for the overall number of vpns you can put together into a multiplex before it hits a cap and you're just doing a lot of pain trying to make that work and a direct connect will be a lot cheaper and a lot simpler on your sanity uh, long term a lot more stable a lot more
3: performant. A lot easier to manage. It's more, just yeah, it's a lot can, more. It's not; they don't cost that much. Just do yeah. it.
1: And, there, and there's fractional providers who will sell you a fraction of of a circuit that then you can grow and, and make bigger over time. So there's lots of options for you to do that uh, in that process. So yeah, I think I think we covered maybe everything but VPC sprawl, uh, which is a. No, side we cover that. We
3: did. Okay, that good. was me complaining about needing a VPC <laughs> in every region in every account. <laughs>
1: Perfect. Uh, I think that's it for VPCs. anything else I missed then? I think we did good. I think we added value to our
3: uh, listeners.
1: Yeah. Networking is hard. This will come up next week again, too, when we talk about accounts and projects. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. that'll be a, a much more interesting conversation to kind of tie this all together. But uh, it, they're two big two topics talked about at the same time. But uh, together, they are a very powerful duo of complexity and amazement. <laughs> so we'll talk about that next week here on the cloud pod.
3: Good night.
1: See you later. Bye everybody. Oh my God. You guys aren't going to say goodbye today, huh? Bye bye. Bye bye.
2: I don't know what I was waiting for.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's an after show, but that's after we say goodbye. <laughs> bye bye.
3: Especially I have to say bye bye. Cause I won't be on the after show tonight.
0: <laughs> I was waiting for one. And that was a week in cloud, but you know, he does always Did say it? that because that's on the recording. No, no, that's, <laughs> yeah, what that's exactly the about, not on
1: there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the show editor right. has other problems. Yeah. All right, Peter. Good night. Have a good night. See you later. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag The Cloud Pod, or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, TheCloudPod.net, for sign-up instructions. Alright, well let's talk about uh, legal things, which is not my strong suit, but uh, Microsoft, GitHub, and OpenAI are urging a judge to throw out the Copilot pilot code ripoff case. Uh, attorneys representing Microsoft, GitHub, and OpenAI have asked the judge to do that based on the grounds that it lacks standing, and so for those of you who are not lawyers, uh, to have standing in this particular case, it must show that a plaintiff have suffered a harm of some kind that the court can address, and that is what the Microsoft, GitHub, and OpenAI Alliance are saying, did not happen, and it's not happening. Uh, this is a uh, lawsuit against from two anonymous plaintiffs who have filed complaints alleging that Copilot was trained on public source code without regard for software licensing terms imposed by those who created the software. Uh, there's a, from the complaint, it says, defendants have made no attempt to comply with the open source licenses that are attached to the more, most of their training data and said they have pretended those licenses do not exist and trained Codex and Copilot to do the same. Uh, that is basically the back end of that particular lawsuit
2: yeah i it I mean it's to me it's very interesting because like I think that that there's strategy here right the they're the, the going after standing because this is anonymous plaintiffs I think that going after standing is a strategy so that they can probably get that exposed so that they can deal with those issues specifically and I think that the reason they're doing that is because the the licensing that they're talking about of oh, this source code is, very opaque and whether it whether it covers the use of it in a training model i think is going to be a very interesting uh uh, mm. uh theological discussion is where i'm going but that's not exactly the, the word i'm looking for but yeah it's because it's going to be it's not going to be very straightforward if yeah. that's protected or not
0: and i i remember all my school textbooks and things you, you read the first page no part of this book may reproduce, uh, you know, in, in partner with whole without express permission to the publisher. But it's, it's a textbook. It's there to teach me. I'm learning from this document. I'm going off into the world, and I'm using the knowledge I've gained from, from learning and reading these passages, and that's okay. But for some reason, training um, copilot pilot on, on public data is not okay. I don't understand it. I think they're going to lose on, on several accounts. The standing thing is an easy way to dismiss the case very quickly. I think in mm-hmm. the end they'll they'll lose because um, GitHub licensing says that analytics is permitted on any public repository and that this, this will fall under the analytics category. But also the, code is not re, um, just reproduced verbatim. And maybe, maybe if, if there's any risk to them at all, it will be somebody with some very specific piece of code We'll, we'll type something into copilot which which reproduces the exact same code out that that, that was in github and in that case they'll be like ah look this was my code you've you've you've
2: stolen it word for word maybe i mean it's going to be that even that when you think about like you know model training and and that like that's going to be such a low low percentage part of the data set i don't know that you would end up with that direct um return value probably yeah. end up with you know something that just doesn't work <laughs> would yeah. be more more likely right so I, yeah it's going to be interesting and and whether or not you know these these open source li- licenses cover training data is going to be is going to be fun and then you know it's going to be less fun when we're all adopting new licensed versions <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: yeah you know yeah. In before in before who's going to write the next version of uh, the license that specifically
1: excludes the use for training yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's I gonna be many, many legal cases <laughs> uh,
2: oh, yeah. about AI. I think this will go to the Supreme Court.
1: And, oh yeah, I, I think there's gonna be multiple, and I, mm-hmm. I worry about our Supreme Court right now and how they will judge on something like this. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's yeah. it's sort of interesting too because like if you get into the situation where you say, okay, they they do win this lawsuit, let's just say the what if game, right? And then you basically now have a precedent that says, well, if knowledge is learned. From a source, then am I entitled to value of that learned knowledge, which could mm-hmm. open up all kinds of other things? About going back to your textbook example, like now, are are you owning royalties to a textbook maker for your degree you got? Like, I mean, like it would be <laughs> well, t- to be fair, they saw them able...
0: cost two or three hundred dollars. So, you know, they're, they're getting they their royalties up front.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so I mean, it, it could be an interesting shift in a lot of ways. Thinking about knowledge and knowledge copyright and and what these means, but you know, Microsoft has a quote here that I sort of liked. Uh, Copilot withdraws nothing from the body of open source code available to the public. Rather, Copilot helps developers write code by generating suggestions based on what is learned from the entire body of knowledge gleaned from the public code. And in doing so, Copilot advances the very values of learning, understanding, and collaboration that animate the open source ethic. Yeah. Now,
2: I think that'll be very substantive to the case too. It's just you know a lot like the standing thing. It's you know like what what are the damages? What are what's the money that you're entitled to from this? Right? Like there's there. I think it's been very intentional that they don't. I don't think they sell this as a product feature. Right? It's built into other things, but. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, even, yeah. you know, this is text, and this is this is a very structured, I mean, programming languages are very structured in their nature, right? So there, to me, this is sort of like, well, this is a scaffolding code in many ways and, and helping you build things, but you still have to customize it and bring intent to it. Mm-hmm. It gets a little more tricky when you start thinking about, like, art. <laughs> and mm-hmm. when, you know, there, there's people who are complaining about, like, oh, well, it stole the style of my art. And I'm like, okay, I, I see your complaint, but then I also look like, how many people are taught how to draw Picassos or to paint Picassos or to paint Rembrandts and like you're copying their style in those scenarios too. So how is it bad that an AI is copying your drawing style? You know, so I think that, you know, again, going into the, all the complexities of these things, it's going to be hard uh, to work these things out over time. And the legal challenges will be pretty extensive. Yeah. Yeah, It'll be
2: fun to see how it shakes out and, and see where everything lands and it's definitely going to be landscape changing.
1: Agreed. Well, uh, Jonathan had to go run, deal with something <laughs> in the middle of our conversation. So we we lost his insight, but uh, I think this is a good topic. It's something we're going we to keep an eye on here on the cloud pod uh, here. See how this case continues to develop if it changes, but uh, we'll see. And uh, we'll see you guys all next week. Great. Bye everybody.